I just want to jump in on something that you were talking about for defining the developing world. I spent a year of my life uh, several years ago living in southern Chad, living and working in the second largest city in the country, Mundu, which at least at the time that I was there did not have consistent, reliable electricity. Most people you know, lived uh, with electricity as an intermittent resource or as a community resource. And so I think it's interesting when we're talking about developing countries to think about not just the different ways that electricity might be produced, but the different ways that people already use electricity and how we can produce electricity that in a, in a way that they're already adapted to using. So for example, when I lived in this neighborhood in Mundu, people would bring their electronics and you know, developing countries leapfrog landlines. So when we think about electricity being generated centrally and distributed through power lines, that's not necessarily what might happen. You know, they leapfrogged expensive infrastructure in the form of landlines and went directly to cell phones, multiple cell phones. So when we're talking about how do we generate electricity in these communities, what the people in my neighborhood in Chad would do is take their cell phones to guys' little shop on the corner who had a generator. And he had a generator because he had a refrigerator and he would sell cold drink and he would charge people money to charge their electronics at his place and they would take it and go home. Some nights people might choose to run their own generator in order to have electricity for a few hours to watch TV, to have their neighbors come and charge their stuff and go home. So it's already, you know, the way that people lived was with electricity as an intermittent resource. If you think about how to cost-effectively bring electricity to developing countries, to rural areas without the centralized infrastructure, expensive infrastructure already in place, it might be a, in the form of a renewable energy set up in a community that's providing energy for that guy's shop who's then selling the energy coming from his solar panels to people that want to come and charge mm -hmm. their stuff. It might be in some guy in the community investing in storage capacity for energy and people can come and charge their stuff when electricity in the community is out or when the sun's not shining and there is no solar. You know, it might be in a group of people their houses close together, invest in having, you know, solar on their roofs, and they all share right. this electricity when it's available, and they don't when it's not. Just okay. the ways that electricity, electrification can happen might be completely different, different. than what we experience with our legacy systems that have, you know, existed right. for decades. Okay, Casey? So I just want to follow on from what Vivek was saying about cost of transition. There's actually a number of studies that have come out that it's in many places on it's actually cheaper to turn off existing coal-fired power plants and replace them with new build solar, even taking into account costs of load shifting with batteries and stuff like that, because the cost of new build solar is cheaper than operating and maintaining legacy coal equipment. And this is really a, a paradigm shift for the entire energy industry. Traditionally speaking, and I know this quite well in Australia, they built a series of very large coal power plants right next to coal mines. The government invested huge amounts of money to build these and to build the transmission infrastructure. The takings from charging electricity bills more or less kept up with operating costs, but they never, ever got close to paying back the original capital expense, which was considered a wider economic benefit. And after 40 or 50 years of operation, that entire investment has been depreciated away to nothing. And you know we're kind of having that conversation now about what do we replace this with? And the coal lobby in Australia is extremely strong. So if you want to know what the argument should have been 15 years ago here, go and look in Australia. So I think it's really, really interesting to, to, to kind of understand the fact that because the return on investment on solar panels can be as short as, you know, a couple of years, in some cases even less, it's actually very possible to fund these things with non-traditional project financing, which is one of the reasons we're seeing explosive growth. It's extremely hard to build an industry that has explosive growth in, in much the same way that our energy transition needs to be in order to get us to where we need to be quickly enough to avert major climate catastrophe at the same time as saying, oh, well, yes, but it's going to take you 30 years to get your money back from this because then there's no money coming back into the system that you can reinvest to make more of the things you need. But if you can get value out of it almost straight away, then there is that money available and you can see that explosive growth. 
And then on the geopolitics point, I think the single most interesting thing that will change is that uh, China's geopolitical vulnerability to oil transitioning the Straits of Malacca is likely to go away as the economy either quickly or slowly transitions away from oil as its primary source of energy and potentially even transitions to synthetic fuels generated by solar power. And so that being the case, one has to wonder, bad luck for Finland, uh, where they don't have reliable solar power uh, year round, or, uh, but there are many other countries who are really kind of chained at the hip to the geopolitics of the Middle East due to their dependence on oil, in particular in East Asia, and that is likely to go away. Vivek? You know, everything that Casey said has only underlined the point. At the end of the day, it's about the economics. It's about the market. How soon can you get that return on investment? And how efficient is that return on investment going to be? It basically boils down to the economics of it. And that's, that's really where the challenge is. It doesn't matter in the long term, whether it's solar or whether it's nuclear or whether it's fusion. But the point really is, like Alexander said, things like solar work in the developing world. Two and a half years ago, I was involved with a project where we looked at solar in setting up solar farms on agricultural land, which was too small to deliver substantial benefits to the owners. A great deal of that is happening in India. You have farms that are three acres and two acres and four acres, and there's not enough that they can grow there to make a living for themselves. But a lot of those farms put together create a solar grid, and that works. That's a market solution. That's an economic solution that works for the farmer. It gives him an alternative income. And at the same time, it drives energy around that village, around maybe 10 or 15 villages around it. So those are the kind of innovations, those are the kind of solutions, and that's really what market forces would do. So the debate at the same time, yes, I take Dr. Zubrin's point that there are going to be interests that are going to lobby against one form of energy or one source of power or one efficient technology against another. But then those interests really come up in countries that have both political and economic freedoms. Those are the countries where the lobbyists actually flourish the most. They don't typically happen in the developing world. Yes, there's corruption, but that's a different form. At the end of the day, it has to deliver. We need energy and it has to deliver economics. Go ahead, Owen. Uh, circle back here quickly to uh, Alexander's uh, comment. Uh, yeah, it's, it's excellent for people who've gone from no electricity to some electricity. That's great. And intermittent is huge improvement over nothing, but we can't leave it there. We could ask ourselves, would we be content with electricity that was only on for six hours out of the day or you know, eight hours out of the day? And the, the obvious answer would be no, we wouldn't be. I don't think that it's fair for European and North American perspectives to be saying, well, you know, you're okay with six hours or eight hours or this intermittent electricity when we wouldn't be okay with that. And there is a lot of, there has been a lot of retardation of developments in Africa from particularly European interests. So there's been pushback, for example, against the Grand uh, Inga Dam, I believe it's called, in Congo, which would supply a massive amount of hydroelectric power. And it, it should have been backed 100% by the, you know, the World Bank and by, by other interests, but it hasn't been. It's been lukewarm at best. There's been a lot of environmental pushback, for example. So I, I don't think that we should expect the rest of the world, the developing world, to settle for anything less 
than non-intermittent power, the same as we wouldn't. I don't think the question that Alexander was making was, the point that Alexander was making was uh, settling for six hours of power or eight hours of power or whatever. The point really is, the point that I was making through the solar panels on farms, that project that I was talking about, is incrementally increasing it from what they have. And then you keep increasing that. And then you eventually end up, want to end up with 24 hours of electricity. It's not a question of six hours, or it's not a question of eight hours or what it is today and what it was yesterday. It's a question of how can you keep incrementally increasing that over time. Right. If someone hasn't had electricity, having four hours of electricity today is bliss. So let's look at it from that perspective. So that's again, comes back to my whole point about framing the question. Most hydropower projects have had massive arguments on ecological grounds. Yes, they've been ecologically destructive. Yes, they um, have been very. Yeah. Yes. So the trade-off there is, do you want to destroy a part of the ecology? Do you want to submerge 150 villages with, say, 50,000 people around it? And therefore, how do you provide them with another economic alternative? Or are they just going to be turned into migrants, even within their own countries? Mm. So these are the questions that come up with any sort of fuel, with any sort of electric source, energy source. At each point, we've got to answer these questions and we've got to look at them from an issue of what eventually is the common good. And these are all trade-offs at some point in time or the other. Can I just be really clear that I don't want anybody to take what I said as as being construed that the developing world should only have access to intermittent electricity. My whole point was that the developing world leapfrogged landlines and that infrastructure that's been in place in our societies for decades, and they went straight to cell phones, which are much more useful than a landline. And in the same way, technological advancement and storage of energy technology is going to permit the developing world to leapfrog our manner of centralized production and distribution and move directly most likely to distributed energy generation. And no, they won't be stuck with intermittent sources of electricity, even though solar is a way to get electricity right now, that's much easier, faster, and more deployable than building a centralized power production plant. The point is that they'll be able to leapfrog a legacy technology and move directly to something that's distributed, like cell phones versus landlines. Just to add to Alexander's point, 20 years ago, it was virtually impossible to get, uh, 25 years ago, to get a landline phone in India. Today, there are over 800 million mobile phones in India. And this is a clear example of what Alexander is saying. Technologies, newer technologies help leap, leapfrog older technologies and therefore drive greater assimilation and greater efficiency. Gareth? Great discussion. I'm, I'm learning a lot. So thanks to everyone who's been contributing so far. Um, I'll just make three uh, quick comments sort of in a global context. And then I'd like to make one follow-up comment on solar, which I personally find fascinating. Uh, so first, the global context. Three things. A lot of our energy discussions ignore the place of oil and petrochemicals in, in materials. I call this the silent partner. We, we focus on, on the more obvious ways, you know, powering our cars, uh, the electrical grid, and all those ways that fossil fuels are used. But if you look around any house, cell phones, uh, electronics, cosmetics, uh, building materials, roads, 
oil and chemicals are everywhere and that will not be easy to deal with. Uh, I saw one estimate that said, if you were gonna produce that petrochemical feedstock synthetically using uh, renewable electricity, it might take about half of the projected electrical generation capacity of the entire world by 2030 just to do that. And that's not keeping up with what we have now or dealing with growth. So at some point, you've got to factor that in. The second thing after materials is mining. Don't underestimate the impact of mining because we're talking about ramping up solar, which is great. And solar can be brilliant. And I'll get to that in the South Australia example. But if you're at, you have to add storage too. So if you're adding storage and batteries and even grid scale batteries for that, and also making vehicles electric, we've got an issue just with the materials that are going to be needed and the extent and scale of the mining. And I don't think people realize what we're talking about in terms of what it will actually take and if we can even do it. The third thing is the majority of the uh, developing world and of the developed world is now either in cities or moving to cities. And the thing with cities is people expect things, you know, you cut your work during the day, you come home in the evening, and then you're using lots of stuff. And that is an issue, however you approach this. And so that's really a good segue into the South Australia example. South Australia, solar's been brilliant. So much so that between about 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. or 4 p.m., solar can meet all the needs of the grid and then some. Actually, to the point where they've had to export about 20 or 30 percent of the solar output and three quarters of it's from rooftop. So it's not even on the grid. And so they've had to basically export some of that and keep the grid running because there's not enough grid use. So they, they've kept about 20 percent fossil fuels during that time just to keep the grid active. And then before that and after that, the grid has to ramp up from about 20 percent to 90 percent plus within a matter of a couple hours, ramp down, ramp up because that's when people come home, that's when they run the things like air conditioners and things that rooftop won't be able to cope with. So is this unsolvable? No, it's just gonna take time. It's really complicated things with maintaining a grid and keeping people in cities happy. And the one thing it isn't right now, even though solar's so cheap during the day, it's not cheap. South Australia has some of the most expensive, if not the most expensive electricity in the world right now. And so, you know, this is something solar's really cheap and wind can be really cheap to add to an existing grid that has stable base load if you only look at the incremental cost of adding it. If you look at the total cost about what you're doing to the grid and what you're gonna have to do to get stable electrical supply, it ain't cheap. And, and we're all gonna have to deal with it in some way or another. So I'll be quiet now. That's all I wanted to say. <laughs> Who would like to, to comment on what Gareth just said? Casey, Ron? Sure, there's two points there. First on, on mining and, and second on overall cost in South Australia. So I ran the numbers on this uh, some time ago, and I kind of came to the conclusion that we're going to have to dig a lot of holes to build enough solar and batteries for everyone. But we are digging a lot of holes anyway. We extract something like 20 cubic kilometers of coal a year, which is a lot. That's like the volume of San Francisco Bay or something. It's, it's a lot of volume, and that just gets turned into gas in the atmosphere. The resource intensity, I think, to build enough solar and batteries to provide enough electricity for typical residential use in the United States is roughly on par with the amount of resource extraction necessary to build an automobile. So it's kind of a lot of money and it's not particularly kind to the environment, but it's also not like we're going to have to build a container ship per person. The second point on overall cost is that, yeah, the cost structures are changing drastically. 
in the way that energy has been uh, produced and distributed to people. Uh, and one of the things that I mentioned uh, briefly in, in the article that I wrote for the Cosmopolitan Globalists was that as the overall cost of uh, generating electricity due to solar power continues to decrease, we'll see increasing opportunities for arbitrage, um, which is what is primarily funding the like 250% annual increase in investment in batteries. And we'll also see a decreasing utility in building very large-scale grid infrastructure, which was a sine qua non for you know, large-scale coal plants in the past, but is no longer really necessary. It'll simply be impossible to subsidize the construction and maintenance of very long-distance uh, grid transmission if solar falls you know, below one cent per kilowatt hour, which it already has in some parts of the world. So overall, I think what we're seeing in South Australia is the consumer being forced to bear the cost of the capital investment necessary to enable this large-scale transition, which has never happened before. In the past, uh, governments have always borrowed the money to build out the grid infrastructure and build out the power plants. Uh, and in this case, that cost, their cost is actually being passed on to the consumer as a partial result of unproductive federal policies in Australia. So, But at the end of the day, people in South Australia are still being able to afford to heat their houses and keep the lights on and run their computers. And I think it's still a fair, fair policy. Okay, Claire? Yeah, I'm listening to this and thinking what we're discussing in large part are optimization problems, very technical optimization problems. And yet the discourse in democratic countries, you would think that this is really a debate between Greta Thunberg and Donald Trump. And really, it's that stupid. How are we going to make good decisions about this? Should it just be left to the markets or should there be public policy involvement? And how are we going to get good public policy when people are in a state of complete hysteria about these issues. Uh, Ron, you want to comment? Yeah, well, it's as if Claire set up what I was going to say. Uh, yeah, no, it, indeed, and, and that the question of policy hasn't really come up so much in the debate so far. And I guess ha having uh, worked for the OECD for so many years, you know, um, uh, one of the problems here is that people who are making decisions, uh, consumers, industries, and so forth, very often aren't really facing the, the true cost of the energy that they're using costs in terms of the pollution, costs in terms of the effects on climate. But in some countries, and particularly my own, my home country, the United States, the idea that we would actually confront consumers with the actual uh, true costs of their energy consumption has become anathema. I mean, almost ever since uh, Jimmy Carter wore a cardigan in, in the White House, you know, it's, it's just like, no, it's a birthright, you know, that, that we're going to have cheap energy and forget the pollution and so forth. And so what that has led to is you still have technological improvements in energy efficiency, but is, is that's often been clawed back through, for example, bigger and bigger vehicles. And so, you know, recently, for example, a Hummer uh, came out and said, oh, we're going to build an all-electric vehicle. And I compared the weight of a, of a Hummer EV to this, the little ones that are now you see increasingly in Paris, 10 times the weight, 10 times uh, the material requirements, which, which touches on what Gareth was saying, 10 times the battery capacity. You know, if people aren't actually facing the, the true cost of actually furnishing that kind of stuff, then we're just going to see more and more and more demand. So one big part of the policy is I think politicians need to really become a little bit more honest with the population about what the actual costs are of standard of living. Alex? Yeah, I think there absolutely is a role for public policy. Uh, as long as renewable energies continue to be cheap, cheaper than other alternatives in many cases, you know, the market will go there, the market will get us there. But the, the role that public policy can play is in speeding all of that up, which we really need to do if we're going to avert a lot of the rippling costs uh, in many ways of climate change on our economies, on our societies, on our health, on our environment. Um, the other thing that public policy can do in order to help speed us up 
and actually to promote a better, more efficient market is by imposing a cost associated with carbon. Carbon has a social cost, it has a health cost, it has an environmental cost. None of those costs have ever been paid for decades. They've been pushed at large onto society, onto people who pay them without knowing that they're paying them. There should be a price on carbon. Part of government's role is to set up markets. The government should be setting up a market for carbon so those costs can be paid. If there's public policy reflecting the, the choices and the desires of voters expressed democratically in our democracies to move towards cleaner energy systems, then public policy should be investing public money in order to accelerate that. Public policy should also be promoting the existence of markets that make our energy choices reflect the actual costs that they entail, as Ron was saying. So yes, I think there's an absolute role for public policy. It, it's critical. All right. Uh, good comments. Uh, again, I'll jump really quickly, just two or three comments. So one, in the depths of the pandemic, when we had taken the equivalent of one third of all vehicle traffic off the roads globally, and 95% of all air travel, oil consumption dropped to 80 million barrels a day. That's 20% at the depths of the pandemic. That tells you what kind of inertia oil has in our global energy systems. I still look at that number and it shocks me. So that's an indication of how difficult this is going to be. And that's not just for the obvious ways we use energy that we've talked about, but also materials. And then the second thing is just an Alberta observation. We had a deep freeze in February for two weeks. And several times while I was out driving, the thermometer without wind chill was minus 40 degrees Celsius while I was driving. I, I drive a standard so I could feel the clutch, the sluggishness, you know, the oil looks a bit like treacle when it gets to that. And I thought, man, it's cold. And we had a wind, but not a lot. And so we've actually got a fair bit of wind power in Alberta. So when the wind's contributing and when it contributes, we use all of it. So it's 15 to 20% of our grid. During that cold snap, we had zero to 2% contribution. If we were relying on wind, a lot of people would have died. I just say that unequivocally. So we needed that base load, thank God for natural gas, because it saved us. So you need something. If it's not going to be that, I agree with Ron, it's, it better be fusion on the scale we're talking about. And I, I think we need to solve it quickly. So that's the second comment. And I guess the other comment is, again, a real-time example. Uh, in Germany, very last few days, they've now gone to 65% emissions cut by 2030. That's what the German government is looking at. And I think there's been a lot of pressure from the Green Party, which is very popular, as I understand it. And, and again, Germany, some of the world's most expensive electricity right now, 50% of their grid right now is, uh, and a fair bit of this is coal, is fossil fuels. You're going to transition away from that and what nuclear they have left in less than 10 years, and you're going to ramp up electric vehicles to 14 million, and you're going to replace all that grid electricity with renewables. And I, I just look at that and say, that's a great plan. I foresee problems with that plan. So again, we've got to think about what these policies mean when you look at them in terms of regular folks. What does this mean for my life? Well, when I look at that, I think it's probably nothing good. So we, we have to think about how to do this in a smart way that lets us transition successfully without panicking and gets us to where we need to be. We can't use oil and gas forever. That's agreed. Like it's not an inexhaustible mm -hmm. resource. We've got to get past it. And it's just how we get past it. Okay? Ron has That's a question it. for you, Gareth. Uh, Gareth, uh, great intervention. On the question of Germany's nuclear power plants, 
have they been basically mothballed in a way that they could be turned back on or are, are they being the ones that have been shut down? Are they being dismantled? Great question, Ron. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I, I know it's about 13% in 2020, I think, was nuclear. If they have mothballed them, I sincerely hope for Germany's sake but <laughs> that it's in a way that they can restart them if they need to. I, I remember um, seeing a documentary, The Switch. Some of you might have, have seen it. And it looked at energy use around the world. And it looked at France's nuclear and said, you know, at the end of the day in France, and they reuse the nuclear fuel, and at the end, they only have 4% waste. So it's really efficient fuel cycle. And so to me, that says you can probably mothball them in a way where you could start them up fairly effectively. And I, I hope that's what Germany's done. Okay, Robert, do you want to comment on this? No, you're the expert here on nuclear. Okay, well, a couple things. I'm sure in Alberta in the winter, you do well with a solar energy when the wind isn't blowing. Actually, I'm here in Colorado and it's May and I'm looking out the sky and it's overcast. We'd have no solar energy today. But I'd like to second the number of points that Gareth has made. First of all, as far as the developing world is concerned, the issue is not primarily that village power, that millions of people are migrating from the country to the cities. Cities are growing all over the developing sector, and they need baseload power, you know, and you cannot have unreliable power sources that go off every night or when the wind stops blowing or this winter, which there is in many places in the world, and you need to have it. So yeah, sure, if you have a village with absolutely no power, putting up a couple of solar panels so that people can have cell phones, that's fine. But you can't run a modern industrial civilization on intermittent power, it just is, is not possible. And that brings up another point, is that the so-called renewable power sources, okay, the chief virtue is that they're off-grid. That's why sailing ships were such a success for thousands of years, because when you're off-grid, there's power. And that's why solar energy is great in outer space. But as a source of baseload grid power, they are unreliable, and actually you damage upon a power grid by inflicting these power sources on it, because all of a sudden now everyone has to adapt to you. It's like having a psychotic on your baseball team, and now you can only recruit baseball players that are able to deal with psychotics. And in the article that Casey wrote, he said, well, nuclear power has problems with load following. Well, nuclear power never had problems with load following for the past 50 years. It supplies 75% of the energy in France, it follows the load, it only has follow problems with load following when you inflict these erratic energy sources on the power system. And now all of a sudden, everybody else has to adapt this to this crazy erratic energy supply. So you want to have reliable power and inflicting unreliable power systems on a grid is a liability, not an asset. Germany is concerned, you know, why are they building the Molotov Ribbentrop pipeline, okay? Because that's where their energy is going to come from. Interrupt right there. Guess, guess who's against the Molotov Ribbentrop pipeline? The Greens. They are completely against it. That's our best hope of stopping Nord Stream 2. Yeah, well, that's fine. But what they're also then against is energy, period. Well, no, that's not true. Ron, I think you had a question for Gareth. No, no, no. It wasn't a question. It was just a clarification. I, I keep hearing from Robert that on a cloudy day, solar output drops to zero. The numbers I see is it does drop, but it's more like 10 to 25%. Also, this argument about intermittent power. Yes, at a certain point, imposing intermittent power on an existing grid uh, creates complications. 
But I don't think anybody here was saying, oh, that uh, this is what we want. I mean, I think basically what Casey was talking about in his article, and, and I think Alexandra was saying this, was that was, no, we do want uh, reliable power, that it, that it is the end goal. But also what Alexander was, was mentioning was that we have seen places where pretty much on their own, entrepreneurs have improved the situation by using things like solar power and, and, and batteries. And that just to, that we ought to understand that's often how the market develops. Okay. Gareth, you wanted to respond? Uh, yes, some good points, Ron, and thank you. Solar actually is growing quickly in Alberta. I think it's the fastest growth for solar in Canada. During that two-week period, we had cloudy skies, so lower solar output. We often get snow, too, and that can be an issue with solar panels also. Basically, when you add intermittent renewables to a, an existing stable grid, and they pass about 30% of your peak daily grid needs, that's when you start to get issues if you're retiring stable baseload. And the reason for that is when things suddenly fall off, you can handle it with transmission, you can pull the power in from somewhere else, and the fact that Texas couldn't was part of their issue, or you can ramp up natural gas or whatever other stable baseload you have and do so very quickly. I think that there's no magic in that 30%. It's just, you know, when I look at countries that have had issues with this, they're all over 30%. Germany's 37% to 40% of kind of intermittent sources. California is kind of in that same range. And so you're, you're starting to get to these points where it becomes an issue in terms of, okay, we have a grid. How do we deal with this? And how do we deal with it in a way that doesn't kill people? Of so, course. Yeah. Vivek, you wanted to, to comment. Yeah, I just wanted to add to the points that Alexander made about carbon and public policy and the points that Claire made about the word that she used, optimization. Yes, markets are great. Markets can be great tools to reallocate resources. Markets cannot be the complete answer to climate adaptation problems. They do not account necessarily, not the way we, our accounting and our economic accounting especially works today, is they do not account for externalities. The way they're trying to get around this is by talking about a cost for carbon, carbon credits, carbon taxes. All of these are fine, but the mechanisms to actually implement carbon credits, there's no answer to that. It was supposed to be debated and finalized in Madrid in 2019. I think it was November, December. And COP26, which was slated for last year, 2020, 2020, and has now been postponed to November 2021. That's supposed to answer the question about how these carbon credits and carbon trading and putting a cost to carbon is really going to work. But then there's so many political and economic questions that come up around that. There's so many questions that go back to the roots of economics in terms of transaction costs that come up around that. That I don't know whether we're going to get perfect answers. And eventually it's going to be what's the cheapest way to augment power, what's the cheapest way to do so without harming the environment. And there's going to be trade-offs for each and every one. So there's no perfect answers at all. 
Uh, Owen, you wanted to say something? Yes, yeah. I'm not sure if this was mentioned earlier or not. Um, uh, just a quick observation that quite apart from the economics of pillar versus renewables, there does seem to be a strong uh, ideological push uh, towards renewables. For example, uh, there was a nuclear power plant closed in California just last week the output of which will be replaced, certainly mostly with fossil fuels in the short term. The EU is having a ongoing debate, which they've now put off till later in the year, whether to even classify nuclear power as green energy or not. So, I mean, we can talk about economics, that's fine. But, well, and, and France has even talked about the idea of reducing their contribution of nuclear power from whatever it is right now, 75%, ramping that down 50%. These are not building new plants. These are plants that have paid for themselves that are relatively cheap to operate. Why would you do that? Right. So just to point out that there does seem to be a push for reasons other than economic, and particularly if people are concerned about climate change, as everybody certainly says they are, why would you get rid of a non-CO2 emitting resource and replace it with fossil fuels? That doesn't make sense to me. So, Yeah, we're at the end. I think that would have been a great question also for Alex, who was looking into all this stuff. Yeah. I don't know, Ron, if you want to just, do you know anything about what's going on in France to respond to Owen? Well, no, I was just going to say that there was also Indian Point, New York, uh, which is, uh, I believe, either closed down or is oh, going to be closed yeah, down. Yeah, sorry, that's what I meant, not California and New York. Uh, okay, you're right. okay. Yeah. Just very briefly on, yeah, on very you know, whether, whether, it's, whether it's rational or not, you know, in terms of all the trade-offs, you know, there are, people are afraid of nuclear power, a lot of people. And, and so it, it tends to be cases where there's a nuclear power plant very close to a very, very large urban area where, where this happens. But that's a whole different debate, whether it makes sense to trade off, et cetera. My understanding in the case of France is that, yes, it was under the Hollande government that they basically proposed reducing the, the contribution of nuclear power in France. But what I've read recently is that France is very quietly backing away from that idea. Okay, clear. I would make, you asked a question, was it, oh, you said, why are people doing something so irrational? And I agree with you. It's completely irrational. I agree with you. And I agree with Rob that nuclear power, as we use it now, is exceptionally safe, probably the safest form of power that we can conceivably deploy right now. And people who object to it are about as scientifically sophisticated as the anti-vaxxers. We do, however, live in a democracy and we can't simply denounce people who have these strong feelings about various forms of power as scientific idiots who should have no role in policymaking as Rob proposed to do at first. He said, I just want to decide this on the basis of the science. We can't do that, not and be a liberal democracy. I'm concerned that we can't even have a rational conversation about a complex issue anymore. And this is a complex issue. If anyone's listened all the way yeah. through, it still feels this is a simple issue. Highly, highly. You're just, mm -hmm. it. it's a complex issue and there are no perfect solutions. We have to find a balance that not, you can't just decide this on the technocratic, on the technocratic merits because there are moral issues as well about which people have different sentiments. Some people do want to live in a lower development, lower risk world. I, Robert finds that idea repulsive, but some people want it and they are part of our democracy. They get a vote too. The best we can hope to do is suggest how complex these issues are and urge people to reject simple narratives about this, urge people to pay less attention to Greta Thunberg, whatever her name is, and less attention to Donald Trump and more attention 
to serious stuff that requires you to think about it, to think about it deeply, learn some science, learn some stuff about statistics, learn some stuff about how the world runs on energy and what we use it for and where it comes from, and think very deeply about how you care, how you prioritize risk, wealth, innovation, government interference in markets. There are many complex issues. So for everyone who um, told me that they were canceling their subscription, I, I don't think you're helping democracy much. No, not much. <laughs> Robert, you wanted to say something? Last word to Robert. <laughs> okay, the problem with saying it's all about democracy is that there has been an organized disinformation campaign to mislead the voters. And it's been very well funded and systematic and extremely dishonest, okay? For instance, a repeated refrain of the anti-nukes is nuclear power plants can blow up like bombs, which is physically impossible because, the well, I could go into it. And numerous other things. There's been campaigns of organized sabotage to increase the cost of nuclear power and then say, well, we don't need nuclear power or shouldn't want it because it's too expensive. I mean, I could give you anecdote after anecdote of actions by government regulators telling people when the plant's design has been approved and it's half built saying, we no longer approve that, build it a different way, rip it up, rebuild it, and then changing their mind again, preventing nuclear power plant operators from uh, correcting problems. It goes on and on, preventing the establishment of a waste repository, preventing uh, nuclear waste recycling as is done in France, which does reduce the amount of nuclear waste by a factor of 100 and increases the value of the fuel by a factor of 100. You know, one could go on and on here. So what you need to understand, the pain you're feeling in your head is being caused by someone smacking you in the head with a baseball bat. And to say, well, this is a conspiracy. Look, this is a very organized thing. And, you know, I've lived this thing since the 70s ever since I've had any connection to the nuclear industry and watched it happen, watched an extremely promising industry offering unlimited potential for humanity be uh, systematically sabotaged. And by people who were doing it to say, in the Sierra Club saying, we're doing this because it could right. cause excessive economic growth and population growth. Hmm. And, and that, that's what we're dealing with here. And the, the ideological foundations of this movement and its willingness to lie and sabotage. And of course, it is also done, you know, against genetically modified foods. And, and you compare it to the anti-vaxxers, except they're not as well funded as the anti-nuclear movement is. But when you see someone go on television, do scare propaganda against vaccinations, you react with horror. Well, these movements, which includes this green movement in Germany, absolutely, which has spread these scare propagandas and lies, th these are criminal movements, okay? And they've caused immense damage to humanity. And we need to recognize that and they need to be exposed to such. Yeah, there's movements against genetically modified foods, nuclear power, there's movements against everything. But that's not the point. The point is... The reason why we get into the Donald Trump versus Greta Thunberg kind of debates is because there's interests in the markets that are trying to influence decision-making, public policy, as it's been called one way or the other. Everyone wants to influence public policy in a way that benefits them first. That's the nature of 
economics. That's the nature of democracy. That's the nature of political freedom that we have today. And having said that, markets don't function without sufficient information. Information asymmetries are a reality. And everyone who gets into a Donald Trump versus Greta Thunberg kind of debate is trying to put out their information so that there is a way of appealing to people that makes them inclined to behave towards one public policy or the other. And at the end of the day, none of this is going to matter. Hmm. What's going to matter is if we agree that climate change is real, if we agree that it's because of the amount of carbon that's being put into the air, then how are we going to reduce that? And how are we going to do it most efficiently without destroying national economies, without destroying financial investments in capital markets? And how are we just going to do that in the best possible, the cheapest possible way? And how are we going to transition towards clean air policy mm -hmm. in the most cost-efficient way? Right. And we're back to the beginning. Claire? Coming up this week, which, uh, which articles are going to be Dr. published? Dr. X respond to some of the questions, some of the very good questions that were asked in the comments. And he was extremely kind to offer to lend his time. I find it depressing in the extreme that I could not persuade him to put his name on that piece. This is just a, a, a humble, modest scientist who finds the discussion, it's not him, it's his wife, his wife who says, I don't want freaks anywhere near my family. And given the mail I got this week, I can't blame him. Wow. Yeah, well, that's I, what we were saying from the beginning. How did it get this crazy, right? Conclusions. We've also got we've got essays coming up this week. Robert's vigorous defense of nuclear power, which we're all looking forward to, and one with which I agree. And we we're going to have Owen talking about what might happen with fusion, and we're going to have a, a, a detailed look at energy politics in Myanmar as a case study, which is very very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Beck is going to write about the economics of the transition. I've come away from this with a hearty appreciation of the complexity of the problem. Have I drawn any conclusions yet? Yeah, I have drawn a few. I'm, I, I think we should definitely be very interested in what's going on with solar. We should never retire a safe nuclear plant. And we need to somehow, either through a carbon tax or through some better mechanism, find some way of making people pay the cost of energy in a rational way. I definitely believe the climate changing. I don't know. I do, I do not believe that the likelihood of it being an apocalypse that wipes out humanity is, is worth worrying about. But I think it's a lot of the consequences are very worth worrying about and will be very economically damaging. I can't believe we're having an argument about whether this is actually happening when, it's, when it is happening. Obviously, it is. That's, that's, not, that's not a debate. One of the reasons we're having this argument is because the most hysterical, shrill people in the world are in the media saying the world is going to end. And it's easy to shoot that down. No, the world's not going to end. A lot of us will survive. But do we really want to pay the price of having major cities underwater, of having small island nations disappear, of really not having any good sense of what will happen if the world warms as much as it will, if we keep putting this much carbon in? We don't. We, obviously, that's not a good thing. So I wish we could have, have this conversation about the things that are complicated and difficult and that require some thought rather than the absurd the slogans, yeah. slogans, which are not helping anything. No, really not. at all, at all. Okay, 
So I'm going to say goodbye to you, Robert. Thank you. Okay, for you. all of the comments, everything. Owen, we're looking forward to that nuclear fusion article. Gareth, it yes. was a pleasure, pleasure having you aboard and you now talking to us about the transition. That was, these were really, really important comments. Vivek, for questions that you brought about were the whole economic, how are we actually going to face this realistically? And thanks, Ron, for the moderating, fabulous moderating all week long, which was not easy, Ron. I try to be diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Claire, I just want to say goodbye to you as well, okay? Thank you, Monique. No, thank you. Thank you. And thanks to everyone. So thank you, Ron. I'd like to thank everyone for sharing their time with us and to listening to the whole debate. Ciao for now, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.